I'm Arlen Hamilton, and I'm an investor. In 2015, I launched Backstage Capital, a venture capital fund, after experiencing food and housing insecurity for most of my life. I wanted to invest in companies led by founders who are women, people of color, and LGBTQ, just like me. I have invested in more than 150 companies since 2015 and growing. I started Your First Million to understand what it was like to make your first million dollars, get your first million fans or downloads, and to see if there was a common thread between us all. Join me as I talk to people from all walks of life about how they got where they are, what they learned on the way, and where they're going. And for those of you who are wondering, yes, I made my first million. <laughs> Let's talk about it. They slept on me, but now they won't. Because I got a million. Fresh out the mud, but I'm clean and so. Because I got a million. I got my first million. So, Nathan, founder of ConvertKit, which I've seen for years, for years, for years. Um, Let's start with what ConvertKit does, but I just really want to dive into your story because I, I think it's so fascinating to know of a successful guy who's not bragging about it all the time. <laughs> so I want to I want to get you to brag a little. So what does Convert what does ConvertKit do in general? Yeah, so we're a creative marketing platform. So we build tools to help creators earn a living online. That's our uh, our mission. Is we exist to help creators earn a living, and so. Um, we started with email, so competing with, you know, the folks like MailChimp and, um, Infusionsoft and tools like that way back in the day, um, you know, helping you as a creator, build an email list and then add automation. And then over time we've built out landing page functionality and now, uh, commerce functionality. So, you know, you can sell your products and sell your coaching and everything else through ConvertKit. Um, I guess the high level about the company, we're very transparent, um, we're a self-funded company, so uh, no outside capital. Uh, we are 68 team members, 42,000 paying customers, 31 million in ARR. Um, and we've got customers ranging from, you know, a podcaster or a blogger, you know, just getting started, you know, and, and on our free plans, free for up to a thousand subscribers, um, all the way up to people like James Clear and Tim Ferriss and, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Tim McGraw and many others um, use ConvertKit too. Well, a you know, couple of things there. I'm hearing. Th- a couple of yeah. things I'm hearing here. One is like you just rattled off stats that we rarely get to hear, um, unless forced. You know, so very impressive, but also really illuminating and helpful to people who are building their companies. And then the second is you listed off people. Um, I, I can't help but notice they all have something in common with each other. What, and that being kind of their profile, right? So these are some of the more well-known, but I know that you all reach people who, you know, I pay attention to all the time. So for the person who's listening, say it's a, a black woman who just started her new consultancy agency. Is that a consultant agency? Is that something that ConvertKit can help her with? Because I, I hear creatives and things like that. How does that relate to her? Yeah. So, you know, anytime that you're running a business audience is it's like this cheat code, it's this, 
you know, you think about what if you had this group of people who were in your corner cheering you on with whatever you're doing, and maybe it starts as a consultancy and then it expands into a product. And you know how these businesses like evolve and change over time. I'm not doing the same thing now that I thought I'd be doing 10 years ago, but I have the same audience and I have the same elements of that, like these people in my corner. And so it's basically can markets for any, any like, um, creative focused entrepreneur who is, trying to build an audience that's going to stick with them and follow them. Um, so you have to have some element, right. Where you're teaching, educating, entertaining, um, you know, one of those things, right. You have to have a reason to send content to people, but yeah, absolutely. We've got an incredible range of people. I think of, uh, like our mutual friend, Rachel Rogers. Um, yeah, absolutely. She's amazing. And, uh, she's been out to our conference to speak a few times and, um, you know, she's someone that has used audience, to like, as she's iterated through her business, because she, for example, was, um, you know, she's, was a lawyer turned content creator, turned coach, turned, you know, eight figure plus entrepreneur. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. and, and audience is the through line through all of that. And so that's absolutely the kind of thing that, uh, you deal with. Yeah. You know, and I, I have a tough time with this in the venture space because, which I know you've kind of shunned, which is in a good way. Right. But I have a tough time because people are like, or at least a few years ago, now they're getting it. But pe people who are like in a traditional venture space are like, why are you all over social? Why are you talking to an audience? It's about the companies. It's about, and I'm like, don't you understand that the brand is top of funnel for all sorts of opportunities. And I tell this to the companies we invest in, like it's not about going out and TikTok and dancing. It's about having people understand who you are and, and adding value, providing value for, for them. And then that's reciprocated. And it ha I've, I've seen that since when I was broke, 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 which is most of my adult life. What I did have was this group of people who fought, like you said, followed me, whether I was doing a blog for women who like women at the time, you know, or I was working on t selling t-shirts or started, you know, going on tour with musicians or starting a venture fund from scratch. And those that audience actually turned into our greatest investors because we were able to do a, a Reg CF campaign in 2021 where we raised $5 million from 6,500 people in eight days. That would have never happened if I hadn't been nurturing that audience all those years and some of them came in and some were new. And so that's why ConvertKit to me is like really interesting. So I could talk to you a lot about ConvertKit, but I also want to understand just your philosophy around how you've approached building ConvertKit. Did you start out saying, I'm going to go look for funding and you couldn't find it and that sort of created an opportunity? Or was it like, I'm not going to go that route to begin with? Yeah. So like everything, uh, it was a whole like messy middle, right? So it started with, I, I didn't think I was building something big enough to consider funding. I like came up in sort of the, the bootstrap software world, you know? So people were thinking like, oh, if I could build this to 20,000 a month in recurring revenue, that would be amazing. Like that's the goal. Um, and recurring revenue is uh, a fantastic thing to pursue and also really hard. So that's where I was at first. We ended up at like the first, it took two years to get to 2000 a month in revenue. Like it was slow going. And then in that third year, we went from 2000 to a hundred thousand a month in revenue. And wow. at that moment we were growing 
so we're hundred thousand a month in revenue growing 20% month over month. Like it's just absolutely exploding. And I said, okay, I think we need to raise capital because we were spending every dollar as fast as it came in. Like we were, we were always profitable, but we would spend, you know, we would make a hundred thousand in a month and spend 98,000, you know? And so you would end up like the cash on hand was getting, uh, growing every month, but shrinking as a function of like days worth of expenses in the bank, you know? So 30 grand in the bank is great when you're, you know, making 20 grand a month or something, or your expenses are 20 grand a month. It's not so good when your expenses are a hundred grand a month. And, and I agree and relate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a certain class of entrepreneurs where it's like, yeah, we've been there. Um, oh, still there. Yes, Yeah. definitely. And so I went out to raise funding. Um, that would have been early 2016. And, um, I went to a conference called the Saster annual conference in San Francisco. I started taking all these meetings with venture capitalists and, I think, you know, if I were telling it like a revisionist history version of the story, I'd be like, I had the best pitch and the investors didn't see it and they missed out. I think the actual version of the story is that I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know how to talk about like the future of the market. And like, I probably didn't have a good pitch. Um, and so every investor was like the blogging market where we were focused, you know, that's way too small. And so I wasn't able to raise capital except for one person, uh, Tomas Tungas from Redpoint, um, made a ton of time for me. And he was like, look, if you want to raise capital, I'll be your first check. I'm in, but also I think you might want to bootstrap this thing. Mm -hmm. Like you're in this, you mm -hmm. have momentum. You can always wait to raise capital if you want. Um, and so he just said like, before you take money, like really think about it. And then later that day, I had a conversation with Mike McDermott, the CEO of FreshBooks, who I randomly met there. And he also super generous, generously made time for me. And he just encouraged me to say to like really keep costs in line and grow into profitability and save up a cash balance. And so we went from that was in January. Um, we were 100,000 a month and like 3% profit margins. By July, we were 250,000 in monthly recurring revenue and 50% profit margins. Mm. And mm. we way over indexed our profit. And we yeah. immediately had to hire like eight more people and profit got to like, a, you know, it was too way. much profit at some point, somehow. <laughs> yeah. And, and we were just growing so fast that we basically said, we're not going to hire any, anyone. We're going to solve problems with code and systems, you know, as much as we can rather than more people. And, you know, and, and we, we saved into that profit. And then we've been, varying levels of profitability ever since. Um, but have always like just built up a cash balance and, and really thought about it as our customers are our investors. Yeah. I actually, uh, put out a joking blog post. It was something like ConvertKit raises $4 million from a large group of angel investors. And in the first line, it's like a large group of angel, you know, 4,000 angel investors also referred to as customers, you know, invested <laughs> X number of millions. And to this day, I can't get that off of like Crunchbase and everything else. Everyone's yeah. like, oh, you raised that. <laughs> and I'm like, no, it's a joke. Oh man, like, you're my people. <laughs> I have to say you're my people because this is exactly it. Like I, I'm, I'm a venture capitalist. I spend time investing in companies, I've invested in 200 plus companies, but I didn't, I wasn't like, oh, I want to be a venture capitalist. I was like, what is the best way I can break into and get access and and resources to, to founders. But I also spend more than 50% of my time 
encouraging and sometimes begging founders to hold on to as much of their company as possible because it's not, it's just, it's equity, it's future fund money. Yes. But it's also that control and your, your destiny, you know, there's just so much more, if you're willing to make some sacrifices, there's so much more um, richness after that. So I venture is just one way and it's for maybe 1% or one, uh, 1% of 1% of of companies. Can I ask you to go back a little bit and tell us just a little bit, because this is your first million. And I know there's some people who are just frantically writing down these notes. I know they're going to want to know, well, how did you go from 2000 to 100,000 a month and, and, ARRR and, and monthly revenue to begin with, like that second year to third year, what happened there? Was it, cause I want to guess and I want you to tell me if I'm right. Was it your deep connection with bloggers and affiliates? Was it something to do with that? Yeah. Yep. It, it absolutely was. Um, okay. Maybe going back a little bit further. One thing that I want to point out is that ConvertKit was not my first product. And so if you think about making money as a skill, like something that you can practice, get better at at time. It's actually, you know, a whole bunch of individual skills. If we think, if we compare it to like music, right? If we were to sit down at the piano, playing the piano is a skill, but it's really, you know, timing and, and uh, music theory and so many, like it's a, the combination of a thousand little skills. I think of making money the same way. And uh, a SaaS company is a pretty hard skill. And so what you want to do, and what I did is I had it, easier products. Like I'd built an audience, I'd written, like self-published a book, you know, I'd, I'd sold some iPhone apps, like easier products to learn skills like copywriting sales. And I have a, a blog post called the ladders of wealth creation that gets into that. If anyone wants to check it out, it's just nathanberry.com um, slash wealth dash creation. And that kind of breaks down that process. And so like I give that as context before we dive into this section, because there was a lot of things that aligned and came together and skills that I'd learned in previous products that like now had their moment to shine basically in ConvertKit. I want to put a fine point on what you just said, because I want everybody to just kind of recalibrate, get ready for your, okay, this is how it happened to know that there was so much that happened before then. I, I say this when I talk about my speaking rate. They're not paying me the speaking rate. They're not paying you your speaking rate for 45 minutes. They're paying you for 41 years to get yes. there. So uh, yes, definitely check out. It sounds like your website is just like this amazing treasure trove of information. So definitely check that out. And um, I'll, 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 I'll hush up now and let you take it over. <laughs> It sounds good. Yeah. I've tried to write a few of these essays, you know, when I talked about the same thing over and over again to be like, or, or if there's a concept in the world that I feel like I understand intuitively from experience, but can't yet explain, then I force myself to like sit down and write an essay to, you know, to say like, okay, this is how I think the world works. And then friends will tear it apart and be like, I think your logic is wrong here. Or, you know, whatever <laughs> else, like you made a big leap. So anyway, and all of that, the, the journey from 2000 a month to a hundred thousand a month had a few key elements. So first I would say like persisting for a long period of time, you know, you, you all see the, the, um, like some graph that starts flat and then goes exponential and, you know, and then it has like a, most people quit here, you know, when it's still flat, like there's a lot of truth to that, you know, of, of a lot of people do give up too early and two years in, 
I would say 20, 22 months in to ConvertKit, uh, all the signs pointed to it's time to time to give up. And so I made a quick framework to try to like decide how to make that decision. Is it time to shut down ConvertKit or should I double down on it? And I just asked two questions. The first was, do I still want this as much today as the day that I started? Because think of all the projects that you do, like that are fueled by motivation. You know, you're like, oh, I'm going to, for me, it was like, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to do this other thing. I'm going to, you know, and then like a couple hours in, maybe a couple weeks in somewhere in there, you're like, that's not, that doesn't sound so fun anymore, you know? And if you get to that point on a project and you're like, look, I want to shut it down and move on. Like, that's totally okay. Like interests change. But for me, I was like, yeah, I still want to make this transition from, you know, writing a blog, being a designer to running a software company. So I was like, I still want it as much as today as the day that I started. So it's like, okay, great. Keep going to the next question. And then that was, have you given this every possible chance to succeed? And when I thought about that, I'd been working on it part-time. Um, I had not raised capital. I had not put in my own money. Really. I'd just been trying to customer fund it. Um, and I'd been hiring contractors, not a full-time team, you know, and probably the biggest thing is that it wasn't, you know, it was like 10 to 20 hours a week for me. It was not my 40, 50, 60 hours a week, um, venture. And so there's a big disconnect for me between, you know, I said, this was so important to me. I really wanted it. And then my effort and like my actions didn't match. And so I realized that if I shut convert it down on that day, I'd always look back and think, could I have made that work? And that was something I knew I needed to go all in for at least a period of time. And after six months, if it didn't work, that's fine. I at least could sleep well at night knowing that I'd given it my best shot. Uh, and so in that, I decided to double down from selling books and, and uh, iPhone apps and all of that. Um, I had some money. And so I pulled in, I like drained our retirement accounts, um, pulled out $50,000 for the company and then pulled out some more money for living expenses. And, uh, then hired, you know, full-time, like a full-time co-founder to take over the technical side. So able to pay him a salary and some equity. And then we focused in on professional bloggers as the target market and went very, very niche. And then I started doing direct sales. I started making lists of, okay, who do we already have as a customer that's got good results. One was a paleo recipe blog. So it's like, okay, let's, let's target paleo recipe blogs and let's make it seem like this product is built just for them. Uh, so I like duplicated the homepage, swapped out the testimonials, swapped out the headers, all of that. And then we'll start direct sales and say, Hey, I see that you're using MailChimp. Is there anything frustrating you about that tool? Uh, the reason I ask is I run ConvertKit. We've got X, Y, and Z as customers. I try to name drop the most relevant, you know, like the one paleo recipe blog that we have as a customer, but they knew them because they're also in that niche. And we just go from there. And it ended up with that, with that work to get people's attention. And it didn't work to get them to switch because they kept saying like, I'd love to switch, but it's just too much work. And so on a whim one day, like out of desperation, I said, uh, I'll do it for you for free. And mm, that started. The do our, it for you. Yeah, it started our concierge migrations, which is a fancy way for saying that you pull up Netflix on one monitor and then they're like FTP into their site and everything else on the other and like copy and, you know, you're like watching a show in the background and like copying and pasting, you know, 200 automation emails from someone from Infusionsoft into ConvertKit and like mm -hmm. setting all of that up. Mm -hmm. 
and we do this on like a $50 a month account. So the hourly rate was like $3 a month or $3 an hour, you know? But what I realized is that every sale we got made the next one just the tiniest bit easier. Because then when someone said, oh, who who uses you? We could get a little bit of, of, you know, I could list five names instead of three, um, like that kind of thing. And so anyway, it it was fantastic. We went from 2000 a month in January to 5,000, um, a month by April. Um, May was 8,000, June was 10,000. And then we started getting some more influential people. Uh, July we hit 15,000 a month. And then that's when like everyone talks about word of mouth and, that like scrappy direct sales is how you get word of mouth. Like mm-hmm. if so, if you say, Oh, we just grew by word of mouth as a entrepreneur, you're like, what am I supposed to do with that? Like, I can't just pull a word of mouth lever. And so word of mouth started to kick in about six months into that, you know, that push two and a half years into the company. And then it started to accelerate like 15,000 to 20,000 a month. Um, then we launched our affiliate program so we could incentivize people for talking about it. And then it went 25,000 to 40,000 to 70,000. And then yeah, at the end of the year, that was the inflection point there. That was the inflection point. And then that next year, we went from 100,000 a month to 500,000 a month. How important in this whole thing, you know, I, I will skip over the I pulled 50K out because not everybody can do that, but some people sure. can. Some people can. Some people, I, I talk to a lot of people, I actually counsel some people, I have customers myself. Some people can. Uh, at the for the right thing, but the bigger thing that I saw in that was how how big was the technical co-founder? Yeah, it was, was that because we're always told we're supposed to have a technical co-founder. Do you think that was as important? So I'm moderately technical myself. My background's in user experience design. That was my career before. So I wrote all the front end code before ConvertKit, and I was a couple years in. And had a little bit of traction, kind of, you know, when I um, brought on the technical co-founder. So it wasn't like we were 50-50 from the beginning, let's found this together. It was like, hey, you're the first engineer. And ConvertKit would would not at all be what it is today without, his name's David, um, without him. Now, he loves that early stage. And so he led all of engineering for us for three years. And he's like, hey, I'm actually, I want to go do something else. And so we actually bought out his shares at his request and, you know, he moved on to other ventures. So having someone who obsessed over like the, over the features, the technical interactions, like he would just code in these animations for a little thing. I'm like, I would never would have thought of that because he, he cared deeply. Somebody said, if you hire a contractor, if if you hire someone uh, half time, you get a quarter of their attention. Mm. And that resonated with me because, you know, we've all been in, in that place. Like the difference between someone who comes in, who's obsessing over product and the customers and everything else versus someone who, you know, is like, cool, what do you want me to build today? I'm going to, for whatever you want me to build, I will do a great job. And that that's, those are the best contractors versus someone who's like, Hey, I like, you know, over, over, like I finished dinner and then I was thinking about how I'm going to solve this problem or how I could make this feature better for customers. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's they're, so important, they're different. especially they're in the different. early days. And there's just so many, you know, I look at, there's, there's a whole no code movement, which I think mm-hmm. is really great. I think of my friend Tara Reed, or I think of the company oh, Bubble, amazing. who are wonderful partners. I think of, um, then just having outsourced kind of 
thing going on for somebody like me who's not, not technical in the least, having outsourced. But then building to a point like at my own company, Runner, when we got to a point where we had technical eyes on things, like I was just like blown away by it. Because it really is a difference between um, telling somebody what you think should happen to the product and them telling you what would, like, here are three options of what we could do. Yeah. I would think about it as if your idea is the hundred percent mark, right. And is the person implementing it getting to 80 or 90% of what you suggested, or are they implementing it like 110, 120% where they're taking it further than you even thought about. Um, and I think that's what, you know, a good early employee or technical co-founder, you know, or, or a designer, like any, any role, uh, it could be someone in ops or marketing who's like, oh, I love where your head's at there. And let me take it the next step rather than saying like, cool, I think I understand what you're doing. And like, I'll get you most of what you dreamed yeah. up. Yeah. You mentioned MailChimp. I wasn't going <laughs> to, but you mentioned it. Yeah. They, to me, seem like you're the closest competitor that I can yeah, see, especially large competitor. Have they all, have you all always been competing with each other blatantly or were they just somewhere that you're, they were a blip, you were a blip to them? And yeah. you just kind of did your thing. Yeah. So MailChimp, I mean, they're huge, right? They're a billion a year in revenue. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you were 31 as of today, right? 30, 31 million. Yeah. 31 so million. You always think about like the difference between a million and a billion is a thousand yeah. times. And you're yeah. like, oh. <laughs> you I, would, I would be fine with 31 million annual. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm pretty content with it as well. Yeah. Um, you know, so MailChimp is the the biggest player in the space. They're absolutely huge. Um, their free plan created a huge amount of of the market, and so we've gotten really good at taking customers from MailChimp. Of basically, you know, they're for all of small business. We're for creators, and so people saying like, "Oh, I'm gonna I'm building a creative business. I'm I'm building something where my audience really matters," rather than a lot of the people using MailChimp might be like, "I was told I should have an email list, or I need a way to." email my customers. So I guess I'm going to use this. Mm. Um, and so, you know, focusing on spe specifically on creators has helped us a lot. Actually, I have so much respect for, uh, Ben Chestnut, the CEO of MailChimp. We were at the same conference, uh, maybe four years ago, five or somewhere in there. And I emailed him, Oh, th this was the Inc 500 conference and MailChimp had been named like Inc's company of the year. So I emailed him was like, Hey, I'm going to be at the conference. I'd, I'd love to meet up. And he said, sure. Like my flights at this time, meet me in the hotel lobby. You know, I should have 20 or 30 minutes, like happy to chat, you know? And then even like the editors at Inc came up to him to say hi. Cause they're like, Oh, I actually edited your story or talked to him. And he's like, Oh, have you met Nathan? He's trying to kill my company. Like with the biggest <laughs> smile on his face. As he, as he in, yeah. Introducing. And he was just so helpful of like, Hey, cause it was like, what role did a free plan play? We wanted to launch our own free plan. And there's a lot of nuance in that. And so he talked through like the mistakes that they made and all of that. Yeah. So I've just always, always had this like positive sum mindset to business. Yeah. yeah he, he is obviously, I mean, I know him and that sounds to me like someone who knows that there's plenty to go around. That's good. Cause I, I always wondered, I always wondered if you all were like, I know that like um, there was a WeWork competitor and they were like tr uh, having vans show up at each other's buildings with loud music blasting right, and just, just trying, trying to, like, to mess with just, each other. And I'm like that, all that does is hurt the customer. All that does right. is hurt the customer. And so that's, well, that's about, good to know. 
if two companies were in this space, like just getting into this feud with each other. And then a third comes in and says, like, we just care about the customer. What mm-hmm. does the customer mm-hmm. need? Mm-hmm. You know, and let's send the van to go talk to customers. You yeah. Know? <laughs> Exactly. Like they're going to exactly. come and beat, like that third, third company is going to come and completely beat yeah. uh, the other two yeah. who are yeah. obsessed with their competitors. It also sounds like you have philosophy behind your work. You remind me of uh, a lot of a Stuart Butterfield vibe where he studied philosophy. That's what he came into and then design. And then, you know, so it sounds similar to me. Is it, um, I don't want to ask you about culture because I think that's tricky. But I do want to ask you about your own ideals and maybe living in, in Boise has something to do with it. Like, what do you just think about in general being the owner leader of this company and what that means for the 68 employees and what that means for your customers? And Yeah, um, I didn't set out to like lead a whole company. So actually at our first team retreat. We had 21 people at the time, got everyone together in person. I remember just sitting around this like giant living room and real like looking around and be like, wow, it's so great that we're all here. We can meet. Who's gonna like I get oh, you're waiting for me. Like I'm the person <laughs> who's supposed to like, you know, say, like lead Amazing. this group of people Amazing. and say inspiring things and like talk about strategy or something. So I'm like a an introverted, reluctant, like public leader, you know. And so that's been like making that shift over the years has come from a lot of, a lot of coaching, a lot of advice from friends and just a lot of practice. There's a range of things, you know, we were talking about ownership before and there were a few key team members, you know, this, uh, David, the second co-founder, you know, our first, uh, operations leader, a few other people who had early equity. And then I thought about, you know, we're never going to sell actually listened to, the, the guys with Basecamp and that whole world where they were like, look, if you're never going to sell, then equity has no value and you're just stringing people along. And they say things like, you know, 1% ownership in something is not ownership. Like that's just to like convince you to work harder. And, mm. and I listened to that for quite a while. And then there's this moment where I realized that we built something that was really valuable. Like, I don't know what point it was, maybe we were at 10 million a year in revenue or something. And I realized like, Oh, if we're following any conventional startup valuations, this is like 50 million to a hundred million dollars. Like that this company is worth somewhere in there. And so we've, we've made something really valuable. You mean to, to, you're saying that at the time. Yeah. 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 At the time. Yeah. Um, and, and I'd realized that I'd actually kind of shortchanged the team by Mm. saying, by not like by, by saying, oh, we're never going to sell. And so equity doesn't have value. And I realized that like secondary rounds are a thing. There's anytime you build a valuable company, someone always wants to own part of it, right? You know, there's all these people with lots of money who are trying to find investments to put it into and you don't have to sell the whole company. And so in tw- 2018, we uh, pivoted, took 10% of the company um, and put it into an options pool for the team. And that was a huge shift. And then in 2020, you know, 2021, we did a small secondary round, um, kind of an angel style. Like we used AngelList, one of their roll-up vehicles. Um, and so it was just like letting friends of the company buy in, buy shares and letting employees um, sell so, shares. Yeah. And so people... You Wait know, a second though, Nathan. 
I didn't hear about this in TechCrunch, so I don't believe you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, Uh, that is so smart. And it's so, you know what I love about that? I love that you just did it rather than say what you were going to do. You know, like we're going to do this so that in four years this happens. You're just like, oh, no, employees have some equity. There are people who want to buy into this growing company. Let's just give them a marketplace to, to exchange that. Yeah. And they can decide what they want to do from there. Yeah. And, and to be totally candid, when we first ex- issued equity, I didn't know how it would have value, like the exact vehicle that we would use to, to realize that we launched a buyback program and started saving and saying, Hey, we'll buy back equity. You know, if people want to sell, we don't have enough money like to buy it back from everybody, but we're at least starting this with what we know. And then when the, options for secondary. Uh, it was actually Darmesh Shah from uh, HubSpot, who's a longtime friend, uh, emailed and he was like, hey, do you have employees who want to sell? I'd happily buy a million dollars worth of shares and, uh, you know, kick that off. And he's like, I'll leave you alone. I don't have any time to be involved in anything anyway. So, And then uh, actually this spring, we carved out another 10% of the company to, to double the size of the team options pool. Because it's just, I realized like we created something that's so, so valuable. Like that secondary round valuation was at 200 million. And so it's like the team deserves a huge part of that. And so wanting to make sure that everyone has real ownership and going back to that line of like 1% of something isn't worth anything, you know, it's like, no, 1% of a $200 million company is worth $2 million. Life changing money. Yeah. That's, you know, that's absolutely wild. And then you get into like the tax advantages of, of, uh, capital gains versus ordinary Mm -hmm. income. Like Mm -hmm. there's just a lot Mm -hmm. of reasons that, um, ownership for employees really, really matters. And so I think that's shaped our culture in a big way. Yeah, definitely. And you think about that stuff, um, Mm -hmm. and you're not in Silicon Valley, you're not in Miami, you're not in Austin, you're in Idaho, right? Yep. Yeah. Was that just where you were raised and you decided to stay there or did you go there purposely? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I was born and raised in Boise um, and still live there today. And so it's where our family is. My wife and I now have a little farm. And so our three little boys run around on the farm along with the chickens and goats and and pigs. And so I I just love Boise. I think there's, there's like a heads down, do your work kind of mentality here. And it's very different from the, like, who are you meeting? Who do you know? Like constantly be networking feel that, um, some other cities have. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so say, it's like, it's show your work rather like do yeah. rather than talk. <laughs> and it's a flight away from anything that you might need to yeah. get to. I, I saw too. Well, you know, I, I would, I would not be a great podcaster if I didn't ask you what's next, (laughs) but I, I, we're on the edge of our seats at this point because you, the world is your oyster and it's your, your employees oyster and your customers. What do you do? Like you could do this for the rest of your life and be great. Right. Yes. The, the plan is, um, to just keep doing this, uh, as far as what's next, we're obsessive over, this one problem of how do we help creators earn a living? And so it's not the problem of email or uh, anything else. It's like, how do we help creators earn a living? And so that brought us to this idea that we're calling the ConvertKit Sponsor Network. And what it is, is basically saying, 
there's a lot of brand dollars who want to come in and sponsor creators. You know, you see that in the podcast world, it's starting in newsletters, but it's not big yet. And if you have say 20,000 subscribers to your newsletter, the idea of going out and finding brands and pitching them and selling them to sponsor is really hard and time consuming. And so what we're doing is we're saying, Hey, we'll take on all of that for you. And if you join the network, then um, what we'll do is we'll sell all these, you know, we'll do the ad sales for you, the copywriting and everything reporting afterwards, right? Cause brands want to know, Hey, how many opened and clicked? Well, if you're on ConvertKit, we can do that reporting for the brand and you can just get paid to, to write. And so we just announced this two months ago. It's still small. We have 70 creators in the pilot program. Uh, we've sold about $250,000 worth of sponsorships uh, in the last two months. And in some ways we're really, really excited. In other ways, we have no clue what we're doing. <laughs> we're learning. Oh, <laughs> well, it's you know, really smart can. though. It's, it's, it reminds me of what anchor did with podcasts mm-hmm. and it's, I'm imagining it's a code somebody put, or something that you native when they're building the, the uh, email. Yep. Right. I mean, makes a lot of sense to me as yeah, long as you can keep it fair for the, for the person. Yeah, exactly. And so what matters is having the creator, uh, it's more of like an influencer style play than uh, an ad network, I guess. Right. So an ad network might be like dropping this code and then who knows what banner ad or mm. whatever is going to show up. Mm. This is much more, we're coming to you and saying, Hey, you know, you talk about investing and in all of this, like, do you think masterworks would be a good fit? Cause they want to sponsor your newsletter. And you're like, yeah, no masterworks sounds good, but this other brand I don't want to work with, you know? And so we're making sure that there's that like uh, high trust part of the relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause the readers will sense that a mile away. Oh yeah. If that's it's not so ma- obvious. matching up. Like, yeah. You know, Oh, you think of us as an ATM where you're just trying to make as much money yeah, as possible. Yeah. Um, so well, yeah, that's it's, cool. it's pretty exciting and, and, uh, ask me in a year how it's going and exactly. probably learned a lot. <laughs> exactly. Do you have any m- milestones that you're trying to reach? Like in your mind, are you saying if I am a hundred million in one day, that's the thing or that's the pinnacle, or are you saying like, I'm at, I'm at it. <laughs> I passed it. You know, I, I think one of the hardest things is being grateful and ambitious simultaneously. Cause people might be like, you're at 30 million. Why aren't you satisfied? And it's like, well, we have a product that we think helps a ton of people and we want to get it to way more people. And also that we think we're capable of more. That'd be like asking an athlete, like, oh, you run a six minute mile. Like, why aren't you satisfied? It's like, cause I, I know I can do better, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we do look at that hundred million a year milestone, not because we're going to hit like self-actualization, you know, <laughs> like nothing really is going to change, but it's sort of like, let's set this target. Cause it means reaching a huge number of creators it means like we have to get, like I have to get way better as a leader than I am today. Like, yeah, I think of the personal transformation that I have to go through to get to that point. Yeah. Um, so that, that's the milestone that's, that's in mind. 31% to goal. <laughs> Do you all have, so it is a hundred. Okay. Do you all have, um, a conference or a, an convert yeah. it awards or anything like that? Yeah. Um, we've got a conference called craft and commerce. Uh, it's every year here in Boise, um, been all kinds of amazing people, uh, out to speak. I think you know, like Nicole Walters, Rachel Rogers, uh, Shante Cofield was another, uh, longtime customer who was out to speak this year. And it's just, it's a small event. It's about 250 to 300 creators. Uh, and it's all, you know, people who already have an audience and an email list and, and they're just trying to help each other earn a living. So 
it's a lot of fun. I'm like a conference snob of going to so many. I'm always like taking notes of what people could do better. And so this is like my opportunity to be like, okay, can we actually make a better conference? Yeah, I think so. I think that's where like all of your work, you see it, you see it in one place, you see how it affects people, how some people's lives have been changed by the work that you do. And who would have known, who would have known that, you know, this code that you built, uh, you know, however many years ago that you thought might bring in a few thousand dollars a month. Yep. Who who would have known how beautiful, um, you know, and what a privilege we both have to be in that position to do that. Anything else that um, I may have missed in this conversation? Because I think I could talk to you for hours and um, I'm going to have you back on. But anything that's going on, you know, September 2023 that is very interesting to you? Yeah. 2022, actually. I said 2023. You're already a year ahead. I'm, hey, that's where I live in the future. So I like it. <laughs> Um, I don't know that anything particular comes, comes to mind. There's sort of this problem, you know, it's a champagne problem, but once you get to a certain scale, there's a ton of opportunities that you could pursue. And then I think a lot of companies fail because then they start to spread themselves thin and they go after everything. Um, there's this phrase, what got you here won't get you there. And I believe that to be true. But you could also fall into a huge trap there where you actually throw aside what got you here and think that it's going to be something new. And so one of the things that I'm really trying to do in ConvertKit is like narrow in that focus and say, okay, these are the few things that we're doing. You know, and we're going to do them really, really well. And we're not going to chase every little shiny thing. And we're actually going to like carefully watch what got us here. And see, not just say, oh, that's not what's going to get us to the next stage. But actually, look, like if that served us really well to this point, maybe it needs like a 20% tweaking strategy, not a 100% tweak. And so when we talk about like, oh, what's exciting coming up, there are big things like the sponsor network and, and things like that, that, you know, we're launching, getting off the ground, but we're trying to be really, really careful and deliberate to launch like one thing a year and otherwise keep improving the core product, you know, make it faster and easier to use. And, and like, how can we just reach more creators like us rather than pursuing like, Oh, now let's expand into this other vertical or let's do this other thing. That's totally, totally different. So that's, that's kind of the way I think about it of like stay focused and do it for a very long time. Seems to be working for you. And uh, I know that this conversation has helped so many people and that that's delight, delightful to me. <laughs> Can't wait to hear the feedback. Thank you so much for your time today and for um, sharing just so transparently how you got here. I think that that's it. Like that's your legacy. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. Arlen. Thanks for listening to this episode. So I would love to keep up with you online. You can find me at Arlen was here on Instagram and on Twitter. That's A-R-L-A-N was here. I cannot wait to continue this conversation with you. Your First Million is produced by Anna Eichenauer, executive producer Arlen Hamilton. And it was Theme song is used by permission by the artist Tobey Nguigwe.